It's been a tense couple of weeks in Portland, where thousands of protesters flooding the streets on a nightly basis are bringing about rapid change. We have a new African-American police chief. Armed police will no longer be posted in our public high schools. Police will face lower budgets and more accountability. This is Culture Hub PDX on Portland Radio Project, where we explore compelling social topics and urgent cultural events. I'm your host, Veronica Bezesti. On today's episode, a new wave of change. Joining us to talk about changes that didn't seem possible until this week, one of Portland's most famous young radicals, a nonprofit leader, and recent Metro Council candidate, Cameron Witten. Welcome, Cameron. Thank you so much for having me on today. It is our pleasure. You have plenty of experience protesting, dating back to the Occupy movement to protest Wall Street in 2011. How do the demonstrations we're seeing today compare to those? That's a great question. You know, I was 20 years old in Portland when I first appeared on the, you know, activist scene. And I like to describe that time as the cosmic palpitation. I could really feel in my heart, my life changing forever. That was an incredible feeling. And because of the activism that I was privileged to be involved in, uh, I've been able to be involved in such important causes in this community, whether that's racial justice, affordable housing, climate change, and more. What I see different about what's happening in this moment, in this window of time and opportunity, is a lot. This is extremely different. I speak about my time in Occupy, about how I was changed, but I see right now that we are all collectively going through a change. And I believe, I can feel it. I think all of us can feel it. That this is something that's gonna be for the long term. We are seeing our leaders really taking responsibility for failed changes. We are seeing new faces, people who we never would have expected to be our allies jumping in and supporting our causes. This gives me a lot of hope that we can maintain this momentum for as long as we need to make sure that the changes happen. I remember when, you know, Black Lives Matter first started, I joined a caravan of a dozen Black Portlanders went down to Ferguson, went to protest the murder of Mike Brown. It's been almost seven years since we have been marching with Black Lives Matter. We've already gone through an I Can't Breathe moment that was captured on TV and disseminated across the world. So when this first happened, when the videos first started coming out, I can tell you, I was already feeling jaded. I was already feeling like our pain 
the disposal of our bodies was going to get ignored once again. We just saw it with Ahmaud Arbery. And so to see that we are have sustained protests every night, that we are seeing our local leaders brought immediate changes to our system of policing. And we have to also acknowledge that we're just getting started. We are literally in the initial moments of this. And I've never seen such dramatic change happen in the matter of days. And that's the reason why I think that we have to keep going because we only got our first concessions. We have to be looking at this entire system, not just policing, but seeing how every part of our society is structured in a way that is holding back black, brown, and indigenous communities. That's part of the reason why I launched the Black Resilience Fund, because we know that poverty is a weapon. We know that poverty is violence. The wealth gap in the United States right now is just as bad as it was in the 1960s. That's a three to one wealth disparity. We cannot continue to wait on uh, job programs or trying to get you know black kids into college to actually close the wealth gap on a timeline that is just, that help us to escape the cycle of perpetuated poverty. And so we have a lot more that we need to do. We need to celebrate the wins that we've gotten in just a week, but let's not lose our eyes to the finish line because that's much farther away. And we need all of us who are currently woken up, who are currently speaking up and taking steps forward to keep going till we get to that finish line. I want to address the establishment of the Black Resilience Fund, but first let's talk about some of these immediate changes. How are you feeling about the push to shift funds away from specialty police units to police street response? And would you explain how it could make a difference? There is a new uh, term that is becoming very popular in this country, and that's defund the police. And what that means is there's acknowledgement that police budgets across this entire country have been swelling. They have been having access to so many different resources that have been used to oppress, kill, and intimidate marginalized communities. Defund the police is a call for us to re-envision what a safe community looks like. And we know that there is data-proven ways to ensure that we are all safe, that we are all prosperous, that does not revolve in funding mass militarization and the policing state as we know it. And so that's what the Fund of Police is about. It is acknowledging that for too many, they are living in a country where they are not safe and that we need to reallocate our resources in a way that we are all supported. And so uh, we have seen that happen across the country. The best example is the uh, city of Minneapolis, where city council has said, we are starting from ground zero. We have dealt with scandal after scandal. We are starting from ground zero. Here in Portland, where we have been investigated by the DOJ, and even after settling that investigation, we hit a record high in the number of mentally ill people who were killed by the Portland police. And so we also have blood on our hands. 
we have to envision more than what just the city council has currently proposed. This is the perfect time because we know that we will not get another unique window like this to actually say, let's start back from scratch. Let's wipe the slate clean. There's too much blood on this slate. We have to start over. The community is watching. We are all wanting to be at the table. I've never seen so many grassroots activists who want to sit down with the mayor and really help to re-envision what the society could look like right now. Our youth, they are not tainted by us as older people who've become accustomed to the ways things are. And we have closed off our minds to the possibility. We have young people who can reopen those eyes and wake us up and get us to make more happen. And so uh, I do wanna express my gratitude to our city council for making some really positive steps forward for defunding the police. But I do know that there's more we need to do. You mentioned earlier that we have a new police chief, a black police chief. I've been doing activism since 2011. And in that time period, I have seen six police chiefs in Portland. In that time period, we've seen the harassment of black people. We've seen the overrepresentation of arrests for houseless people, mentally ill people getting killed. So changing the leadership is not enough. We have to change the system. We've made some positive steps, but we know that this is the perfect time to be more bold and to really envision this from the ground zero. You mentioned that the youth are a vital part of this movement. Let's talk about the removal of armed police in our schools. The school superintendent and the mayor say that won't continue. What's your reaction to that? It's something that leaders and students have been calling to happen for a very long time. And so uh, this was a long time coming. This should have been a long time ago. It's, it's hard for me to uh, celebrate that as a win uh, because it's something that the community has called for for so long. Uh, there are other policies that I think are very exceptional that the city took leadership on uh, that we did not expect to happen. Uh, and so it's good. It's, it's, it's a good win for us to finally have school environments where our black, brown, indigenous kids uh, feel like they can go to without fear for their life. And let's continue to listen to our youth to figure out what more we can do to ensure that they feel safe, not just at school, but as they walk back home, as they walk to work, as they're in their cars, uh, we still need to guarantee their safety everywhere they go. You recently established the Black Resilience Fund that we mentioned a little bit earlier. What is that and how is it going? So the Black Resilience Fund is an emergency effort to provide immediate resources to Black folks. The Black Resilience Fund is here to foster healing and resilience during a difficult time. We, for years, have been grieving the loss of Black lives and Black bodies. And um, it's been so disappointing to see um, with the number of highly documented, the number of highly distributed uh, videos and photos of Black pain, of Black murder, and nothing has been done. And so we see a lot of white folks who are checking in on their black friends. We see a lot of folks you know, buying Black Lives Matter signs. We see folks you know, going into marches, but we know that we have to do more for our neighbors. We have to actually see them, see their burden, 
and help them to lift that burden off of their backs. And so we created this because we know that we're in the middle of a pandemic. And now we are witnessing a time of collective trauma for black folks. What we know we can do immediately is just to lift off some of their financial burden so that there's one less bill they have to worry about. They don't have to worry about where their money's gonna come for groceries. So they can focus on their lives. So they have breathing room. They can live their life to the fullest. Uh, we have served over 150 people so far, and it's been amazing to collect testimonials from some of the people that we've served. And many people mention, you know, I felt like this week I couldn't get through it until I held that check in my hand. It finally felt like it could come up for air. And to me, it's so astounding to see in the middle of the era of I can't breathe, we are hearing from black folks that we helped who are saying that they can breathe, that they have fresh air. To me, that is powerful. And it really speaks to what healing looks like for a community. It's not just not being killed by the police. It's about actually having opportunity and being able to thrive and feel like your neighbors care about you and your community. That's what we mean with Black Lives Matter. It doesn't mean to stop killing us. It means that we want to be celebrated and be loved, just like everyone deserves to be. How are you getting funds to the people through the Black Resilience Fund? How are you getting funds to people who need them? And how are you validating the requests for those funds? Yes, great question. Uh, the Black Resilience Fund is nine days old, and we are so grateful to have the support of so many Portlanders. We are close to 6,000 individual donations to the Black Resilience Fund. We have raised $400,000 in nine days. And... With that, we are working as hard as we can to get that money out as urgently as possible. We have recruited over 500 volunteers in less than two weeks. We have trained so many people to do intake. So we have a request form where we've received over 2,300 individual requests. And we have uh, volunteers who are setting up video conferences so that we can confirm that people are eligible for funds uh, because we don't want to turn anyone away. You know, we're making sure that we continue to fundraise. Our current fundraising goal is a million dollars because we want to make sure that every person who is eligible for funds receives something substantial. And so this is a call not for black folks to ask for less or to expect less, but for folks with privilege to do more. This is the time that we have to acknowledge that we have waited too long for change. This is the perfect time for us to pass the baton of privilege so that others can move forward. And so that's our process. Uh, every day we are seeing more people applying for need uh, and we need donations. We're seeing businesses, other nonprofits, we're seeing uh, you know, informal organizations pitching in and donating. We're gonna need 15,000 individual contributions to get to our million dollar goal. I know we can do it. And this is a beacon. I, this is what's so important is that for the rest of this country, Portland can show that we care about healing, we care about resilience. At a time when the pain is so hard to bear, we are actually reaching in and making sacrifices so that our black neighbors have room to breathe. I don't know any other city that is showing such grassroots swell of support the way that we're doing it. And we can spread this across the country. You know, I'm talking to some folks in Alabama who want to create a resilience fund there. Uh, so let's use this opportunity 
to raise a million dollars to show that our black folks here in Portland are seen. We do want to do more than just say Black Lives Matter. We actually want to make sure that when they go home, they see a check on their counter and they know that that's one less thing they have to worry about. That to me is what healing looks like. Keep shining the light on healing, Cameron. You're continuing to make a huge difference. Thanks for taking time to join us this evening. Thank you. Coming up, Chanel Walker-Harris, a trauma counselor to adolescents, when we come back. We are out here fighting for change, and we want you to be a part of that as you stand there armed, ready to hurt us, ready to hurt us, ready to hurt us. Mostly peaceful demonstrations continued on the streets of Portland into the second week of June, protesting the death of George Floyd and police brutality. Already, significant changes are being put in place in Portland. Welcome back to Culture Hub on Portland Radio Project. I'm Veronica Bezesti, and joining me now is Chanel Walker-Harris, licensed professional counselor and trauma therapy provider with Western Psychology and Counseling Services. Thanks for being here, Chanel. Thank you, guys. Thank you for having me. I also want to point out that Chanel is a PRP volunteer who assisted us with content development for this episode. So thank you for that as well, Chanel. Thank you, guys. You heard Portland School Superintendent Guerrero say, and Mayor Wheeler has recently confirmed, that armed police officers will no longer be coming into our high schools. In general, what's your reaction to the removal of those officers from our high school campuses? Well, initially, I just thought, wow, that's exciting and energizing, and that really represents some real change that's going to go beyond the trendiness, potentially, or just the momentum that we all have right now. And as a trauma provider, I definitely understand how policing can be a traumatizing experience to our teens and how it's often something that they think about frequently and are triggered within the school system by seeing the school resource officers. They kind of already are in defense mode, you know, and just they don't feel safe ironically enough. And so when I heard that, I just was super proud of Portland, to be honest, that we're moving in a real direction of change. Can you expand a little bit about on the idea that these high school students are not feeling safe, the the sign of authority that triggers them? Can you Can you go into a little bit more about that? Well, I can only speak from just a small perspective of students that I work with, but I think honestly across race, whether it's obviously our black and brown students, but even some of our just students um, from a a socioeconomic standpoint that are more disadvantaged and that have a lot more adversity in their own lives, it just seems to be that... um, I know Portland Public School tries, at least I feel like they try, um, but they're checking off a lot of boxes and they're being very logical, so to speak, and maybe not necessarily getting to the heart of different issues that are in the homes of these students that I work with. And so sometimes they don't need a school resource officer. As cliche as it may sound, they just need a listening ear and somebody that's seeing them visibility. And so when they see a school resource officer, it looks much like maybe even that overly stern uncle or stepdad or just anyone else in their lives that just come from a perspective of stern discipline, 
authoritarian type style that's not working because they're trying to express pain and we're just trying to, you know, I guess get kids to fall in line and move on with our day. And so I, I find that it's very triggering um, for different types of things that these students face just on a daily basis in their home. Beyond the subject of police on campus, what are students' major concerns right now? And have you been in touch with any or perhaps many since the protests began? I've been in touch with a few. And what I find that's coming up is what do I do when I feel in my heart something very differently than my family? What do I do when I was raised maybe this way, but I'm kind of feeling like that's a little wrong or maybe we need to adjust that some. For instance, I have a student that feels like their parents are good people, but they said that they don't understand that by saying Black Lives Matter, it doesn't dismiss all lives. And so they are having these conversations with their parents like, but wait, mom or dad, you don't understand. Black lives can matter and all lives can matter. And then they're like, wow, this is really weird. Like, I really don't like what my mom or dad are saying right now, Chanel, and I really feel at odds with my own family. And it causes them to look at their family differently. And for the first time, some of my students are encountering this idea that maybe this is where their own individuality separates from just being a part of a familial unit. Like they're really seeing who they are. And unfortunately, it may be a little different than someone they idolized in their own family. From a psychological standpoint, what impact do you think this historical moment of protest will have on those young people? Oh, man. That's a tough one because I feel like it's individual. Um, I think we're all going to have residual effects of trauma from this whole ordeal because it's like encapsulated in this idea of a health pandemic. Um, But for a lot of my kids, I'm seeing that it's also going to be a defining point of who they are. And it really asserts their own independence and this uh, idea of standing up for what they believe in, even when the same people that taught them to do that don't believe in what they believe in, but standing strong. And I think this is going to be a marker that they look back to and say, this is what molded me. You and your husband moved to Portland last year from New Orleans. Were you wary of moving to a city that was mostly white, well over 70 percent white, according to the census? I wasn't. I can't speak for my husband. He's not here. And his background comes from like Los Angeles and Chicago. But for me, I grew up in private school. So I was always that one black kid in a white space. So this was Portland was nothing to me in that regard. Like I I opened it, you know, with open arms. I was like, whatever, because I'm going to always be Chanel and I'm not going to let other people define who Chanel is. So I was I was fine. Well, we are glad Chanel and Justin are here. (laughs) Have you and Justin been out to protests? Oh, my goodness. Yes, we've been to one. We went to the one on Southeast 13th and Stark. And forgive me if I've gotten that a little wrong. I'm still learning stuff. But we definitely went to the Revolution Hall protest that went outward to downtown. And we went to the Wednesday protest. And it was... Oh, it was beautiful. It was overwhelming. I think as a person of color, what you'll find from other persons of color, if you talk to them, is that it's this weird outer body experience where you're really excited about all this, but you're also like, 
okay, but this has been a thing. And and then you're also like, not sure if you trust that it's going to actually affect change. And so we're just kind of in these different emotional spaces, but it was really, really beautiful overall. And I'm super proud of Portland. What do you fear and hope will come out of this moment? And let's start with what's your greatest fear? Oh, my gosh. My greatest fear is that things won't change. (laughs) My greatest fear is that this is another hashtag. This is another social media post. This is another trendy movement that we're all excited about. And then in two weeks, we go back to our regular lives. My fear is that we've all been in the house for almost three months. And so anything to attach ourselves to and get out would be nice. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so I'm really hoping that like, even when that sloughs away, that this is really different this time. This is really different and it sticks. It sticks to local policy across the 50 states and the 50 major cities. That's my fear slash the next question, hope. (laughs) Right. When you are most optimistic, what's your greatest hope for a lasting impact from this moment? My greatest hope is that maybe finally, as a person of psychology, and I work with multiple people from different gender, race, ethnicities, religion, you name it, backgrounds, I hope that finally we're just heard as a people to a person that maybe didn't understand before. Maybe you genuinely understand now and you want to understand more. You want to learn more. Um, And that we just truly have more allies because I can't, as a black woman, do this alone. The black community can't do this alone. I need all allies, all allies, because this is a humanity issue. This is a humanity issue. Even aside from race, we saw where police in Buffalo pushed an elderly white man to the ground and he bled out from his head. Guess what? That benefits from this whole Black Lives Matter as well, because it's a police brutality issue in general, too. And that's my hope, is that we can all see that. And let's change stuff. Beautifully said. Beautifully said. Chanel Walker-Harris, thanks for taking the time to be with us this afternoon. Thank you, guys. Chanel is a therapist for adolescents and adults. She assisted with content development for the premiere episode of Culture Hub PDX. After a quick break, writer, poet, and creative revolutionist Renee Mitchell will join us with a poem about listening. It took many thousands of people taking to the streets night after night to be heard in their outcry for justice and an end to police brutality against people of color in America. Welcome back to Culture Hub PDX. I'm your host, Veronica Bezesti. Joining us now, award-winning writer, published author, social justice advocate, and self-described creative revolutionist, S. Renee Mitchell. Welcome, Renee. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. We are so happy to have you joining us today. What is a creative revolutionist, by the way? (laughs) Actually, it's a title that I made up because people would ask me, well, what do you do? And basically, I could list about 15 different things. And so I came up with one thing that just kind of captured the different types of projects I'm involved in, the different types of skills that I've been able to um, create. And, um, and so Creative Revolution is also about the intention of, in some ways, disruption, uh, social justice, you know, those things that we think about when we, when we think about revolution, but all around arts-based 
which is a way of storytelling that empowers people. Well, it works. You wear it well. (laughs) Thank you. With the changes we've seen just this week, a new police chief, the decision to remove armed officers from our schools, does it seem like those voices are finally being heard? Oh, I think they're absolutely being heard. And and you could see on, on social media how people are listing all of the different changes that have come about because people's voices are kind of coming together and, and forcing change. And so, yes, it, it definitely is making a difference and it's exciting to see. In terms of your work with adolescents teaching and mentoring at Roosevelt High School, do you teach them to make themselves heard? Well, I'm no longer a teacher. Um, There was a time when I was the only Black teacher there for several years, but I left uh, the school to be able to focus on my youth development program called I Am More. And through this program, we absolutely are helping uh, young people not only have their voices heard, but to understand their voices are valuable and that they internally need to understand that their voices deserve to be heard. You have a poem for us about listening, which we'll hear in a moment. Um, But first, tell us about a new project of yours, Black Joy Virus. And was that a coincidence in how that acronym came together with what's going on right now? Actually, I I, I call myself, that's part of my creative revolutionist kind of gig. I'm an uh, acronym queen. I am more as an acronym. And the Joy Virus stands for Journey of Youth Voices, Inspiring Resiliency and Unveiling Strengths. So it's really based in joy, but it's just a creative way of, of, of letting people know that this is, this is intergenerational, um, but really helping youth to kind of be the leaders of uh, investing joy back into the Black community. Wow, amazing work. And I see you're raising funds for it on Facebook so people can support. Yes, I am, as well as um, trying to find other uh, options for fundraising, including the fund that you just mentioned with Cameron <laughs> and, um, and and other sources. But absolutely, it's going to take a collective effort to kind of make this happen. And we're prepared to do whatever it takes to uh, fulfill what we intend to do. The name of the poem you're reciting for us today is Forced in the Silence to Listen. Does it need a little introduction? Well, maybe a little bit. Um, You know, earlier uh, in the the, uh, pandemic, I was, like everyone else, just kind of emotionally exhausted by uh, the things that we couldn't do and the things that we were seeing. And I um, wasn't even giving myself permission to go and sit on my porch. And one day I just decided uh, that, that, you know, it was a beautiful day and I'm surrounded by trees. And, and I took the book, Michelle Obama's book called Becoming, and I sat on my porch and was just kind of enjoying the, the sounds of, of, of nature. And there was a, a bee that kept kind of buzzing around me. And generally, I, I don't mess with bees. <laughs> Um, but it just felt like uh, the presence of that bee was not intended to uh, hurt me. And so I just kind of uh, communed with it. You know, I just just decided to stay my ground and realized through that experience that there, were, there was something deeper, more spiritual, spiritually relevant going on. And so as a, you know, as a, as a poet, 
among other kind of creative things that I do, I just felt really led to kind of acknowledge what I was feeling and what the deeper meaning was. Uh, and so that's how this poem came about, Forced in the Silence to Listen. I'm excited to hear it, as I'm sure our listeners are. Thank you. When this threat of harm has passed, whether through death, disease, or determined intention, my goal is to be different, more purposeful, more aware. Today I am allowing seemingly immaterial moments to become a mirror and yield social insects to serve as sages. Who would have guessed the clamorous buzzing of bees, which once stirred fear, frustration, fury even, could teach life lessons about whom I decide to allow into my life, who to let go of, and who to just let be. More and more, I'm asking myself, what can those who are annoying, disrespectful, callous, and unkind teach me about the peculiarities within myself? Inform me of the ways I need to adjust and fine-tune and confess the names of people I should forgive. With this forced silence prompted by an invisible enemy, I am learning with open heart to turn inward, to discover wisdom, love, and healing, and to graciously let go of the habit to go outside of myself for self-soothing. In each moment, I can allow myself to get caught up in the insistence, irritation, and distraction of someone else's way of being, or I can, unattached to an outcome, Decide not to uncomfortably shift, deliberately swat, or demand they be different. I am becoming better at recognizing that heated words are emotional billboards hiding in plain sight, displaying a longing to be seen, heard, to feel safe. And anger, absence, annoyance is sometimes, most times, all times, just an expression of distress tightly wrapping itself around the weight of anxiety or the horror of relentless ruminations. Your buzzing about is rarely ever about me. And not even a worldwide crisis will prompt some folks to show affection beyond their capacity to love themselves. People can't give you something they don't possess or graciously receive something they don't believe they deserve. So I am listening better now. Yesterday, I, I could have easily have found blame and assigned it a home, but today I choose to choose differently. I decide to see purpose in our cross paths, a deeper reason for our relationship. Like most humans, bees cooperate in the caring for one another. Each bee's existence leverages an intentional interconnectedness, an individual contribution toward the collective good. As they collect nectar to make honey, their rapid wings beat, stir vibrations that agitate a plant's pollen, which fertilizes the next visited flower. Eventually, bees return to their hive, carrying reserves to feed the larvae, and even though most die before the fruit of their labor is realized, reciprocity is mutual survival. So consider, if you will, the next time you are confronted with an irritating animation of energy, you have a choice, you know. Each encounter with another is an opportunity for an unfolding of a new truth, an invitation to re-see reality and pose a self-reflective question that can shape one's becoming. Am I hearing 
or am I listening? Thank you. Wonderful. I, I particularly like the part about interconnectiveness and making an individual contribution to the collective good. Absolutely. That's what's happening now. Renee Mitchell, thank you for that inspiration and thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you for, for having me. And um, I just want to wish everyone to, to love themselves and give themselves some grace. Thank you. That's Culture Hub PDX for now. Thanks for joining us. Chris Arneson is our engineer. Rebecca Webb and Aja Wagner produced the podcast, which was edited by Daniel Lin. Protest audio provided by South of Autumn Productions. I'm your host, Veronica Bezesti. See you next time on Culture Hub PDX. Culture Hub.